gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, our next speaker, Dr. Doug uh, Strusan. Uh, Doug is uh, uh, is a remarkable authority, uh, serving the interests of this country and our school and our armed forces in so many different ways. Uh, Doug's main uh, main job is as a professor at uh, the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, which is uh, part of the Marine Corps University. Um, maybe I should, uh, should, should we wait a second here before people start coming in? Might have gotten a little ahead of the crowd. Okay. Well, we have, the, we, have, we have the Marine flag officer in the room, so maybe we should go ahead. That's right. The jump about that, the Army flag officer. So, uh, Doug has been teaching at the Marine Corps uh, University since 2005, but he's also been teaching here for many years at IWP. Uh, he has been a senior fellow at the investigative project of, on the Middle East. He has taught uh, at the University of Maryland. He has been a senior fellow and director of the Greater Middle East Program and the Global Strategy Discussion Program of the U.S. Global Strategy Council. Uh, he has served as a consultant to the National Strategy Information Center. Uh, he was, was chairman of the Persian Gulf Working Group in the early 90s. Uh, he has been a consultant to Defense Systems Incorporated and was also for a couple of years a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He uh, has his bachelor's degree from Duke University and his master's and his PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, he uh, comes from a distinguished uh, academic family and uh, has been the, is the author of, uh, of several books. He's an authority on, uh, on, on South Asian affairs, the history of the Mughal Empire. He's written a book recently called uh, I think it's the Islamic Gunpowder Empires. As I've got it, yes. Is that on the Safavid, the Mughal, and the Ottoman Empires? Uh, he is teaching here on uh, our courses on Islam and Islamism, on jihadist threat doctrine, uh, and also on uh, the on, on on Iran, Afghanistan, and and uh, Pakistan. And uh, anyway. Doug makes, makes so many contributions in these fields. I just wanted to thank him before everybody and turn the floor over to you, Doug. <clears throat> thank you, John. It is always ennobling to do anything associated with the Institute of World Politics and in particular to work for you. Uh, personifies the lesson that humility is a source of power. <laughs> uh, I need to start with the standard disclaimer that nothing that I say uh, represents the views of Marine Corps University or any agency of the U.S. government. And with a second disclaimer that uh, unlike most of IWP's faculty members, I am not a scholar practitioner. I am a, uh, a you know, I don't know whether, whether to I should distinguish myself as a pure scholar or impure by virtue of being only a scholar. Uh, 
But I'm also, I'm also not an intelligence analyst in that I'm not someone who watches day-to-day uh, -day what is going on with Iran or anywhere else. I'm looking at, at broader patterns, um, and as John was referring to, my academic background actually would suit me more to talk about Iran in 1500 than today. Uh, but to, uh, to connect back to the previous panel, I'd just like to share with you an observation that I make to all of my students at, at the Command and Staff College, which is that there is no law of nature or of nature's God which holds that U.S. Marines cannot find themselves in the situation that they were on Guadalcanal in August of 1942, that the U.S. Army cannot find itself where it was with Task Force Smith in 1950, that the U.S. Navy cannot find itself where it was at Pearl Harbor and off of Savo Island, and that the U.S. Air Force cannot find itself where it was at Hickam Field and Clark Field in December of 1941. We cannot rely on, any, on, any, um, on anyone but ourselves to ensure that those uh, uh, terrible outcomes do not recur. Um, although I am a specialist on the Middle East and South and Central Asia, I have at least been able to avoid the tendency to assume that because I specialize in that area, it is the most important or most dangerous part of the world. And in fact, well, the first time that I was interviewed after the 9-11 attacks, the one thing that I said was that if we neglected issues such as the growing power of China, the resurgence of Russia, uh, etc. To deal with the threat of terrorism, things would end up getting much worse. And we have that things have ended up getting much worse. Iran is only a small piece of it. Uh, so, to talk, to talk about Iran, I'm going to start out with a sort of general description of a uh, country, how we should categorize it, how we should think about it. Talk about the ruling ideology, the issue of Iranian nationalism, the strengths and weakness of the regime, its geopolitical fears and geopolitical ambitions, the nuclear and missile programs, the uh, nuclear agreement, uh, and what our options are. So, we should think of Iran as an insurgent regional power with a totalitarian ideology that is opposed to the liberal global order in general and the interest of the United States in particular on both ideological and geopolitical grounds. I do not call it a rising power because I am uncomfortable calling states with low birth rates rising powers. Um, it's curious that for, that for almost a 30-year uh, interlude, um, most analysts of global affairs were so afraid of 
rising populations of the so-called population bomb that until very recently was necessary to go back to something that, that the august Robert Strauss of Pei had written in the early 50s to find someone who's talking about population as a source of national power. Uh, but nonetheless, Iran regards itself as a rising power and is determined to be a rising power. The ideology of the Islamic Republic of Iran is what Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, uh, and Ayatollah literally means proof of God, and Ruhollah means spirit of God. And if, in fact, Khomeini were a proof of God and the spirit of God, we would all be in very serious trouble. Um, uh, is his doctrine of vilayat al-fiqih, the rule of the jurist. And this theory addresses the problem in Shi'i Islam of who should govern in the absence of the awaited Imam. Who should govern in the, in, when, when in the well, the, the oh, Imam is, although not, 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 although in some way present, not available as a source of, of guidance. And Khomeini answers this question by saying that a regime led by a fakih, a legal expert of the highest level, could not only govern in, in, as an interim or provisional authority until the, the imam's extended vacation ends, but actually could govern with the full authority of the Imam. This ideology I characterize as the Shi'i variety of the broader ideology of totalitarian Islamism. Uh, the, uh, the Al-Qaeda networks and uh, the so-called Islamic State, which I prefer to call Daesh from the, on the basis of the Arabic acronym, simply because they don't like it. Um, I, 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 I'm, uh, there are Sunni totalitarian Islamists. And I use the term totalitarian Islamism because this ideology is not a product of the internal dynamics of Islamic thought. It is also not a representation of the historical mainstream of Islamic political thought. It is instead a fusion of a persistent minority position within Islamic political thought. Uh, which holds that Islam requires a, a political action to establish a truly Islamic political and social system. Again, that is a historically minority position. And Western totalitarian ideas. Khomeini did not read Lenin, but he read people who read Lenin. Um, 
Abu Ala, the, the, the framers of the Sunni side of totalitarian ideology, Abu Ala Maududi, certainly read Lenin, and say Kutub probably did, but certainly read Maududi. So you, you cannot get um, from Muhammad in 632 to say Kutub and the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamic State and the Al-Qaeda networks today um, or to Khomeini today without going through the Finland station. This, so the totalitarian Islamism interprets Islam as a utopian political ideology in which a path to, in the, in the, on the, the Shi'i side, the return of the Imam is available through human action. In other words, it transforms <laughs> Islam, a religion, into what the great anti-totalitarian philosopher Eric Boglin called a political religion when he was referring to Marxism, Leninism, and fascism. So, I would argue, I would say that Islam is not a political religion, but totalitarian Islamism is. Now, Khomeini was, in his time, only one of five grand ayatollahs, ayatollahs of the highest rank in Iran, and there were, were more grand ayatollahs in Iraq than there are today. Khomeini is still, to the best of my knowledge today, the only ayatollah of his rank to accept this ideology. It is an innovation of his own, and no other grand ayatollah, certainly not the most prestigious grand ayatollah of today, Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq, has ever espoused it. And Khomeini did not, did not gain power because he had persuaded the vast majority of the Iranian people of the validity of his doctrine. And many of the people who cheered for Khomeini on the barricades during the revolution had no idea what Khomeini stood for other than opposition to the Shah. Um, one of the five Ayatollah, other five ayatollahs uh, at the time, Ayatollah Shariat Madari, opposed the constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran on the grounds that sovereignty belonged not to God but to the people. And he had as much theological um, standing as Khomeini did. But his followers had fewer automatic weapons. Um, and, and you know, I think that, that you know, we've seen on a number of occasions that automatic weapons can have a, a decisive effect in political debate. Certainly, they can have a decisive effect in ending it. Now, Vilayat Fakhi and totalitarian Islamism are like most, if not all, if not all totalitarian ideologies, essentially universalist. 
And in fact, when Khomeini returned to Iran in 1979, he did not wish to establish an Islamic Republic of Iran. He wished to establish the Islamic Republic, which would eventually encompass the entire Islamic world and presumably, eventually, the entire world beyond it. But like Joseph Stalin, Khomeini quickly got a lesson um, that in the utility of nationalism, um, just as uh, as, as of uh, June 22nd, 1941, Stalin, the Georgian, found Russian nationalism extremely useful. Uh, as of the, the, the time of the Iraqi invasion of Iran in 1980, Khomeini found Iranian nationalism useful. Uh, um, I don't think that Saddam Hussein envisioned the invasion as a form of education for Khomeini, but it certainly had that effect. Um, and one has to understand that Iran is an extremely nationalist country, and even the emigre communities um, in California and elsewhere who detest the Islamic Republic are nonetheless deeply attached to Iran and have a, a vision of Iran's greatness. And so, so in fact, the Iranian nuclear program, not the nuclear weapons program, but the idea of Iran as a nuclear state is more popular, I think, than the regime is as a whole. Um, and although, like all nationalisms, Iranian nationalism is a relatively recent creation, a product of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, but it, it goes back and retrospectively attaches itself to Iranian imperial greatness, the, the greatness of the Persian Empire, the Persians who fought the Greeks, the Achaemenids, and then later the, the Sasanians. And Iranians see themselves as the bearer of one of the world's great civilizations and entitled to a far more prominent position in the world on that basis than they have had in the last 1,500 years or so. Uh, not, 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 not a precise figure. Under the Pahlavi monarchy, the regime sought to identify itself almost entirely with Iran's pre-Islamic imperial past. So that the, the books, particularly uh, uh, coffee table books uh, on Iranian history published in the Shah's time have a very short section for the period between the Arab conquest and the present. Uh, and uh, 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 so after the revolution, there was a strong sense that the Iran, the, the, the Islamic revolutionary agenda and the Iranian national agenda were in conflict. That there was sort of either one or the other. And in the, in, you know, the, the, the very 
distinguished advocate of the school of realism in international relations, uh, Graham Fuller, you know, almost 30 years ago now, you know, wrote a, a very insightful book on Iranian foreign policy, arguing that whatever its ideology, the Iranian regime was going to act like an Iranian regime, as realists do, because they dismiss the importance of ideology. Um, and the assumption was that, that, in other words, that this would lead to the abandonment of the revolutionary ideology, to the idea of exporting revolution. But it's useful to remember that one of the lesser ideologues of the Iranian revolution, who, di who died before he could play any role in the government, another Ayatollah, Ayatollah Talagani, wrote that there should be no conflict between Iran's national identity and its Islamic identity because Iranians were naturally the best Muslims. So what we have seen very clearly in the last several years is the alignment of Iran's national agenda with its revolutionary agenda through the mechanism of making Shi'i groups elsewhere in the Middle East, the Houthis in Yemen, the Shi'is of Iran, the Alawis uh, of Syria, and the Shi'is of Lebanon into instruments of Iranian national power, um, seeking to restore territories held for many centuries by Iranian empires. So the idea that there is a, uh, an antagonism between Iran's revolutionary ideology and the vision of, of empire is no longer possible. And those two um, um, primary drivers of Iranian policy have come into line. Ever, almost ever since the, the Iranian Revolution, various American and other Western analysts have described the Islamic Republican regime as extremely vulnerable and contended that if the United States would just do the right thing, push the right button, so to speak, um, that the regime would fall. Um, we've had a lot of trouble finding that button and it may turn out uh, to be a dummy anyway. Um, it is absolutely true that the Iranian people are no longer mobilized, are no longer made enthusiastic by this revolutionary ideology. That many of them have uh, particularly the younger, educated, urban populations have um, uh, have you know are, are extremely disillusioned with this regime, very attracted to the United States. The United States you know, is very popular in Iran. The Iranian government is not. 
But that does not mean that that unpopularity adds up to a serious threat to the regime. There is no opposition movement. And to a great extent, the uh, Iranian regime has discouraged people to the extent that they have given up on politics. Rather than seeking to oppose the regime, they seek to ignore the regime and hope that the regime will ignore them. Um, uh, some years ago, uh, you know, the, the, uh, some people were ex got excited because uh, they said that the, 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 the green movement, the, the, the uh, popular opposition movement that appeared in Iran after the 2009 elections had the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps penetrated. And I asked a friend of mine, who was an Iran analyst, uh, uh, about this, and he said, well, that's true, but you also have to remember that the Revolutionary Guard Corps has the Green Movement penetrated. <laughs> um, so the regime faces serious limitations long term. Is it demographically, it's very, the situation in Iran is very unusual. It's a very young population with a very low birth rate. In the immediate aftermath of the revolution, unlike most other um, regimes that define themselves as Islamic, the Ayatollahs, uh, or the Khomeini and his followers, decided that un unconstrained population growth would be a threat to the, to, to the country. So they not only permitted, but encouraged the use of birth control. So um, uh, the population, uh, so with, with contraception available, uh, people are having children when they choose to, and many of them are expressing their lack of confidence in the regime by not having children. So the, the birth rate is, I believe, one point, you know, below 1.5 children per woman. Uh, one interesting side effect of this is the extraordinary popularity today of what is known as muta marriage, temporary marriage in Iran. The, this is a, a practice which Shi'i Islam has long accepted as legal, uh, which a couple marries with an expiration date. Um, and in a situation in which, you know, you have a, a you know, in which uh, what used to be called lewd and lascivious co cohabitation in this country and is now called living together is actually illegal. You know, temporary marriage permits it to happen you know, with, with complete legal sanction. And there are, you know, people advertising for temporary spouses in large number. And, you know, so why do they want to, what, what, uh, you know, what is the one thing that you would not want to do in a temporary marriage? Have children. I think that, 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 that the, the popularity of temporary marriage is uh, not, uh, is, is, uh, not only a, a, a is not a, not a, a uh, an indication only that, that that the Iranians have you know normal 
um, sexual desires, but that they do not want those desires to result in children. Um, another factor in the low birth rate is that um, that uh, standard gynecological care by Western standard is not is not available in Iran, so that um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, particularly chlamydia, are um, extremely common in Iran, and of course, chlamydia leads to um, uh, sterility. So, looking at the long-term future of the regime, there's reason for serious concern. Also, you know, back when Khomeini died, the regime faced something of a quandary. I told you that Khomeini was the only Grand Ayatollah, the only Grand Ayatollah of the highest rank who believed in his own ideology. And yet his form of government required having such a person at the top of the regime. So they had to fake one. Khamenei is not really a Grand Ayatollah. You can't improvise being a Grand Ayatollah because one of the, the, the steps in, that, in, in obtaining that credential requires 30 years of study. Uh, so you, you, it's not something that one can, that one can do quickly. Uh, so the, the only people who believe in the ideology are those who are benefiting from it. Uh, but the regime still has extremely capable instruments of coercion. They are still capable of um, managing any, any political debate decisively with automatic weapons. Iran has its share of geopolitical fears and because the United States, we have faced national nightmares, but most of those have been internally driven. And really, even today, the only external national nightmares involve attack with, what, with nuclear weapons, either by a state actor or a non-state actor. Uh, without nuclear weapons, terrorism, I would contend, although it is an extremely serious threat, is not a survival threat. But Iran, like many other states, is driven by national nightmares. I mean, in, um, talk about a state, a state driven by national nightmares. Uh, some, some state that is close to the heart of many people associated with this institution, Poland. Poland has experienced enough national nightmares to drive its policy for the next millennium. But Iran um, has imaginary fears and real ones. Because if you look at the, at the map of Iran, you'll, you'll see that on the periphery of the country, the populations are almost all non-Persian speaking, and in some cases, not even Shi'i Muslim minorities. The Baluch in the southwest, the Arabs of Iran in the southeast, who are not who, you know, just to confuse outsiders, are Sunnis, where their Iranian compatriots and their Arab brethren across the border in Iraq are Shi'is. Uh, further north, you have uh, the Kurds, so that Iran is 
almost as concerned with the idea of a Kurdish state as Turkey is. Um, and then north of that, the Azeri Turks, and in the, and in the northeast, the Turkmen. And the Iranians fear that outside powers, particularly the United States, seek to use this ethnic division to reduce Iran to the Persian-speaking core. Their national nightmare, like that of a number of other countries, is dismemberment. And in order to, you know, I remember some years back, Edward Litwak uh, described uh, the Romans as paranoid in that the ultimate purpose of Hadrian's Wall was to provide security for downtown Rome. Uh, but, well, the, but the idea of re Iran's regional ambitions represent not only a restoration of empire, but security against dismemberment. They represent in, in Thucydidean terms the uh, results of fear as well as honor and greed. To the extent, I have never, I have never seen documentation saying that the um, leadership of Iran today is reading the history of the Achaemenids and Sasanians and uh, attempting to uh, locate GPS coordinates for, their, for the borders of those empires. But they do certainly see Iran as the natural and legitimate dominant power in its environment, just as they would say that North America and the Caribbean are um, the, United, the natural sphere of influence of the United States. And they would, Iranians would probably say that, you know, that the East and South China Seas are the natural sphere of influence, if not the actual territory of China. They see themselves as the natural arbiters of what they, along with traditional Western geographers, see as the, called, called the Persian Gulf. And they regard uh, themselves as the bearers of a civilization which was ancient and wise, um, 3,000 3, years before the Saudis stopped being camel herders. Um, and 2,000 or 2,000 years before the Europeans started wearing, stopped wearing skins. Um, their nuclear missile program, uh, nuclear and ballistic missile programs are elements that respond both to their fear and to their greed. Long before Iran began to approach nuclear weapons capability, some observers argued that the existing con Western concepts of deterrence could not work on the Iranians because threatening an atheist with death is a far more decisive threat than threatening someone who believes that death will lead to paradise. 
And some observers have actually suggested that the Iranian, that Iran, an Iranian regime might initiate hostilities because they believed that that, pro that, that, would, would, that, that process could, have been, could lead eventually to the return of the awaited imam. To refer to, go back to terms of, of the Cold War and, and Marxist ideology, one might describe that as a sort of Trotskyite perspective. And I believe that the Iranian regime is Stalinist in that it believes in Vilayatifaki in one country. So that while I do not dispute, of course, that the power, the, you know, the power of the idea of paradise. Um, there are many people who truly believe uh, that their faith will will guarantee them paradise after death, who nonetheless uh, prefer to live for the moment. Um, I, so I am I am less worried about the possibility that Iran would be undeterrable. However, should we reach a point at which we believe that an Iranian use of nuclear weapons was imminent, I would st strongly in favor of preemptive action as opposed to preventive action. It is also worth remembering that the Iranians are close friends of and close observers of North Korea. So far as I know, no North Korean nuclear test and no North Korean missile test has taken place without an Iranian delegation present. And one might argue, it's, it's an open question, is whether the Iranians actually have nuclear weapons domiciled in North Korea, just as some people would argue that the Saudis already have nuclear weapons domiciled in Pakistan. Um, I agree with my predecessors that there is no indication that the Iranians will give up on this ambition as long as the nature of the regime, not necessarily the name, but the nature of the regime, does not change fundamentally. Um, and you know, we're talking, after all, of, cha of a change as fundamental as the one which led the one nuclear weapon state to give them up, South Africa. Uh, I think that, that the United States should do everything possible to delay and restrict and interfere with the Iranian nuclear program. Um, I believe that the, the nuclear agreement was a misguided attempt that, that, was, that the Obama administration came into office imagining that by, uh, by apologizing for 
preventing a communist takeover over, over Iran in 1953, for which I think we, we owe no apology to anyone, um, that they could start a process that would lead to a grand bargain transforming the Islamic Republic of Iran into a responsible stakeholder. And even though they made no progress in pursuit of a grand bargain, they continued to pursue this agreement as, uh, as if the rest of the grand bargain were going on. I would never have entered into that agreement. I think we were much better off uh, keeping um, sanction pressure on. But we cannot go back and change it. And I'm, I am concerned that a withdrawal from the agreement would hurt ourselves more than it would hurt the Iranians. And I am concerned at this point about hurting the Iranians. Yes, we, we are, we are, yes, um, that's, that, I, I, I've got two or three more sentences. So we do not have good options with regard to Iran. The options that we ought to have are options that we should have been working on starting in the early 90s on global conventional precision strike and comprehensive ballistic missile defense. Uh, but the option that we do not have is regarding Iran as anything less than a dangerous enemy that will remain hostile to us because that hostility is a fundamental component of the constitution with a small c of the Iranian regime. And that in concrete terms, one of the, uh, the major policy dilemmas that we will face and will face soon is how to avoid turning Ira you know, Iraq over to the Iranians entirely after the defeat of Daesh. The Obama administration, again, you know, to the extent to which they understood this, essentially was willing to turn Iraq over to Iran in 2011. Daesh did us perhaps a favor of giving us a second chance but it will be extremely difficult to take advantage of it because we, you know, we have to find ways to activate Iraqi nationalism, Arab nationalism, among the Shi'i Arabs of Iraq. And of course, trying to manipulate someone else's nationalism is a dangerous thing.